What are these people thinking, Neil? What are they thinking? And they really should be ashamed of themselves knowing that they've been elected with the responsibility of protecting the citizens. That's like their number one responsibility, ensuring safety and protection for those who live in the District of Columbia. They have failed that mission. Now, only thanks to what I believe Republicans will do with this bill on Capitol Hill, because it has to go, it has to go there. Right. That's the only solace that the people of D.C. have. This is The Middle with Anthony Weiner. Unplugged. Welcome to episode 20 of The Middle Unplugged, a break in the middle of the week when we reclaim the microphone from the far left and the far right and try to carve out some time for a less shrill and less extreme and generally less angry conversation and maybe a conversation that brings context where it's lacking. It's axiomatic in politics that you always want to be talking about the things you want to be talking about. If that doesn't make much sense, it's basically sometimes there are issues that emerge in the national news or emerge in a story that takes hold that is in a place that you think you're in a really good footing politically. Take, for example, when the decision on Roe v. Wade came down, we started a national conversation about women's rights. That was good for Democrats. But Republicans and their super PAC at Fox that you just heard in that intro have decided that it's really good politics to be talking about crime. And maybe they're right about that. Crime, criminology, justice in general, these are things that are easy to demagogue about. Lock the scum up, but, you know, bumper stickers like that. But they are complicated and nuanced. And sometimes we have these moments in American civic life, like we did around George Floyd or even before that, where discussions about criminal justice get a little bit more nuanced. But a great look at this concept that the Republicans have always liked the issue of crime is, you know, when we had this force here of the no-cash bail. You know, they took this issue that we did here in New York and has really been done virtually around the country, this idea of just because if two people have been accused of the exact same crime and that one can afford to pay a $200 bail but another can't, that that's not fair. And so, but they were successful. During the last midterm elections, this notion of no-cash bail became an effective bumper sticker on Fox News and for its candidates in we had one of the closest elections in recent history here in New York. The Republicans did very well around crime. And if the Republicans in Fox love a good crime story, they especially love a crime story that involves urban crime. They love talking about Chicago, for example. So it was in their nature to love a story about lawmakers in a largely black city changing their laws to go easier on carjackers. Wait, really? Is that really a thing? Take a listen. There are times when the antics of the far left are simply astonishing, and the far left people on the Washington, D.C. City Council have come through with a truly astonishing crime bill. At a time when violent crime is surging, the City Council voted to reduce prison sentences, give jury trials for almost all misdemeanor cases, reduce penalties for burglary and carjacking, <coughs> and cut the maximum penalty for a felony with a gun to four years from 15. Can you believe this? Yeah, well, by the way, that wasn't me coughing. That was on the cut. As you heard, the city in question here doing these wild things in the face of a crime epidemic, as Stuart Vaughn, he says, is Washington, D.C. And since that city is overseen by Congress, you heard a reference to the idea that the Republican House was quick to jump to action and to try to nullify the will of the 700,000 or so mostly black residents 
that express their will through the city council. It's in the nature of Republicans to want to jump on these issues. And I have to tell you, it does seem pretty dumb to reduce penalties on carjackers right now when crime is indeed a rising problem. But what if that's just did not happening? Like, what if Fox News talking points are just wrong? I know. Can you imagine that ever happening? Ever Fox acting like the propaganda arm of the Republican Party? We hear nothing about that. But but here's what happened. And here's the real story around this. And before we get to the reaction to it, the criminal code in the District of Columbia is very old. It was written by Congress because it's a federal enclave. It was written by Congress 133 years ago. And it reads like it. It's got the, it's vague in a lot of places, and it has provisions that might have made sense in 1901. But just as states around the country, starting in the 1960s or so, started to update their codes, that's what finally happened in the District of Columbia. And so how did they do it? They did it by putting together a commission. And they didn't put a bunch of wacko lefties on it. They put prosecutors. They put prosecutors from the Justice Department, the U.S. Attorney for the District of Columbia, the D.C. Attorney General, the people that prosecute crimes in that structure since you know they're this unique status. And that group put their proposals together, presented it to the city council, and the city council presented it, passed it overwhelmingly. So what crazy things they did? Did they reduce sentences? Did they go soft on crime in the middle of a rising crime wave? The short answer is no. They did none of those things. The primary thing they did is they took this handful of very broad-based categories of crime that might have made sense or been sufficient generations ago and basically divided them up into categories, gave them their own sections and their own penalties. And the way they did it was not, you know, say, here's what we think should be the penalty. They they did it in a way that is about as non-controversial as you can imagine. They went back to the years 2010 through 2019 when they had a full decade of data and they looked at the actual sentences being handled out by actual judges for each of these crimes. So they took that range and then they added a few extra years in case judges wanted to be extra harsh and they basically got new guidelines. So how did it work in reality? Well, believe it or not, carjacking and second-degree murder were in the same category in the existing 130-year-old scheme in the District of Columbia. And that whole category had a maximum penalty of 40 years. But no one has ever been sentenced to anything like it for carjacking. They found the highest penalty that had ever been given was 15 years in that 10 years. Remember, the judges could hand down, anytime they wanted to up to now, a 40-year sentence for carjacking. The most that was ever handed down was 15 years by judges. So what they did is when they came up with the new code, they wrote carjacking as a specific crime, and they said the maximum penalty would be 24 years. They took 15 years, added a nine-year buffer, 24 years. Now, one interpretation would be, well, they took a crime that was a 40-year maximum and made it a 24. They're soft on carjacking. In fact, no, they took a crime that had gotten a 15-year penalty, and they said now you can go up to 24 years if you want. And so that's where they come up with this idea. They reduced the crime. They reduced the penalty for carjacking. Basically, judges could impose the exact same sentence and even go higher if they wanted to. But what about that robbery thing they mentioned in the cold open to the show and in the cut. As crazy as it sounds, the D.C. Code, from again, from a century ago, had only one robbery statute in it. 
And that meant that a robbery by pickpocket or a robbery where someone pistol whips someone almost to death faces the same 15-year maximum under the present law. You probably see where I'm going with this already. So the outrageous D.C. City Council proposed dividing the crimes into sentences, armed and unarmed, then into degrees with sentences like different, you know, first degree, second degree, third degree, depending upon how much violence and what weapons were used. So when you take the pickpocketing, they decided on a penalty for up to two years for pickpocketing and armed robbery up to 20 years for armed robbery. What did that mean? That means pickpocketing, which once had a 15-year maximum penalty, but never did. They Remember, they went through the last 10 years and they looked at roughly what the averages were, will now be two years. And a robbery, which used to have a 15-year max, will now have a 20. There are plenty of cases, actually, where the maximums rise under this proposal in the D.C. in the D.C. City Council. Sex crimes, gun offenses, attempted murder, believe it or not, had a, a max of five years. Now it's going to be 22 and a half years. It even adds a new crime, the proposal by the city council that has caused so much kerfuffle, endangerment with a firearm, which would help cases, prosecutors, because of the antiquated law that they had on the books, that if someone was shooting a handgun recklessly or fired it into a crowd, unless they can show a specific person that they were aiming at, they had trouble prosecuting that. And since prosecutors helped write these proposals, they decided to come up with that new endangerment with firearms. So what is newsworthy about this? Is it newsworthy that Fox fudged about this story and came up with a line of argument? They're eliminating bail. That's Fox. I mean, that's kind of what they do. They're politics when in fact this you know what dc was doing was creating a structure like virtually every other state but i want to linger on that moment just for a second this notion that it's like any other state it's not the district of columbia is not a state and this is not an argument about whether they should have statehood it has no senator it has one non-voting member delegate in the house of representatives as i said the population is about 700,000 people, they elect their own mayor, they elect a city council, and then they pass laws. And then they kind of sit and hope that the city, that the Congress doesn't stop them from doing what they want. It's essentially, they're a colony. I mean, that's the way it used to be in colonial India. So these small government Republicans who are now in charge of the House of Representatives, they go back home and they talk about fighting for, to get government off the backs of their constituents and Washington should be a smaller bureau, you know, the, that the Congress should create smaller bureaucracies and get rid of government oversight and he hands off the wallets and guns of their constituents. Yet they don't have any similar impulse when it comes to D.C. In D.C. they want to do all of those things. And so they did. They jumped in. The newly empowered House Republicans jumped in to action to nullify these new changes. And it's pretty clear that the sponsor of the bill this guy called Andrew Clyde from Georgia. When he's finished with this, he's probably going to go to the next bill he introduced, which is to end D.C. home rule altogether. But, you know, this hypocrisy is in the nature of today's Republican Party. Small government conservatism, which includes making health care decisions for individual women in their bedrooms. Yes, hypocrisy is a thing. But this is a story that leads me to ask, what of the Democrats— in today's Congress, reading about Republicans doing 
crazy things, doing show bills, and the rest of Washington and the legislative, doing the legislative version of just kind of rolling their eyes at them and walking away. But this was not the same. In this story, 31 Democrats in the House of Representatives went along and voted for this nullification of this D.C. package of laws. Now, none of them from anywhere near Maryland or Virginia. And it doesn't end, like most stories, it doesn't end with the democratically controlled Senate saying, we're just going to refuse to take this up. We're not going to go along with this. After 31 Democrats in the House joined, Senator Joe Manchin said that he would join. And since this only requires 51 votes, this is not a filibuster kind of issue. Um, Suddenly, the Senate looked like they were going to go ahead with Democratic help, only Joe Manchin, but maybe more. We're going to go along with this. But there's something even more. At least if the Republicans want to do something crazy and they get one Joe Manchin vote, it shouldn't matter because we've got President Joe Biden who has announced all along that he supports statehood for D.C., supports home rule. Well, on Thursday of last week, he puts out the following tweet. And here's a quote here. I support D.C. statehood and home rule, but I don't support some of the changes D.C. put forward over the mayor's objections such as lowering penalties for carjacking. If the Senate votes to overturn what the D.C. Council did, I will sign it. I'm sorry, pal, but that's straight-up contradiction. The whole idea of supporting home rule is to, I don't know, support home rules. (laughs) Somehow using the mayor's veto as a fig leaf, and by the way, the mayor does not want Congress, even though she did veto this, doesn't want the Congress to overturn it, and the city council overruled her veto. Using the mayor's veto as a fig leaf for not supporting the home rule is basically to say, I don't like the part of the home rule which covers making rules, you know, like, because that's part of the process is, yeah, sometimes in home rules, you're going to overrule vetoes. Now, putting aside the stupidity of Biden using the Fox News talking point about carjacking, the worst part of this is how this opens the door. Now, at first blush, there appears to be a strong argument for the political jujitsu of just letting the issue go, just get it out of the way, it's not worth fighting over. But this is not a one-off. What this really does is close the door to the simplest and clearest and most appealing defense of D.C. governing itself. That basically, it's nobody else's business. Every time TV demagogues or performative conservatives want to butt into the lives of D.C. residents who want to pass legislation, I don't know, name it, for recreational marijuana or LGBTQ protections or abortion protections for women. Democrats have had, and frankly most independents I think would probably agree with this, had a simple answer. It's not our judgment what counts here, it's theirs. It's a fundamental element of democracy. Now at least 32 Democrats and our president are doing the same thing, taking something they don't understand and thus don't like and folding to the easiest path. Well, sometimes the easiest path is just to not engage in an argument the other side wants to have. Sometimes the easiest path is to just accept the demagoguery and save the context for another time. Often that's the most politically expedient thing to do. I don't deny it. But Biden did the expedient thing here by kind of cowering. But not only is it wrong on the substance, it's also wrong on the politics. The people of D.C. needed the president and the Democrats to fight for them, and they didn't. The demagogues won the day, and now they're probably going to win a lot more in the future. And when we get back, I'll do some listener mail.
So welcome back to The Middle Unplugged. I'm Anthony Weiner. Each week we like to dip into the mailbag and respond to a bit of feedback that we get. I do a show called The Middle at 2 o'clock on Saturdays. It's available in a separate podcast. And in that, obviously, we do good old-fashioned telephone calls podcasts. We don't have that luxury. We have other things we can do here, like, I don't know, curse, although I don't do that. Then, then Michael has to put a little explicit sign on the tag. We don't like to do that. And the way to reach out to me is by at Rep Wiener to reach out to me on Twitter, R-E-P-W-E-I-N-E-R. Anthony D. Wiener is our Facebook page. WienerWABC.com is my Gmail address for this show. And today the email comes from Eugene in Smithtown, and he is apparently a listener because he says, I'll just quote the part, I heard you defend Joe Biden for lying about Social Security, but I didn't hear one word about how Democrats would pay the debt. He's referring to an episode I did a few weeks back about the kerfuffle over, second time I've used that word here, the kerfuffle over Social Security and explained it a little bit and explained that indeed Republicans have been in favor of dipping into the Social Security Trust Fund or privatizing Social Security or cutting Social Security and Medicare, that that was part of the Republican legacy. And I remember talking about ways to stabilize Social Security and how relatively easy it would do. But if you want to hear some of my short version of the proposal to deal with our debt and deficits is to start returning progressivity to the tax code. About 80% of the tax cuts that have been passed since 2000 went to the wealthiest 40% of Americans. Nearly two-thirds went to the wealthiest 20% of Americans, and most of that went to the wealthiest 5%. So you want some ideas? I'll run a couple of by you. You know, one of the things is I think there should be a minimum income tax for billionaires. A billionaire. Not for you, Eugene. Not for most people who listen to this program. But anyone whose wealth is over $100 million, requiring them to pay at least 20% tax rate on all income they have, including unrealized capital gains, meaning they're able to get loans based on the capital gains. That's how they consider themselves wealthy. Um, and currently, the very wealthy can accumulate capital gains, meaning their stock values go up, their companies get, their equities get more and more valuable, and they pay no taxes on that if they don't sell their assets, even when they pass it along to their heirs. And so I say 20% on that every year. If, it, if your assets go up and your wealth go up by $100 million, 20% of that should be paid in taxes. You should feel a tax cut just as much as someone does who pays 20% on each and every dollar they make in payroll. Another idea is, you know, all of these companies that have been enormously successful over this period, what have they been doing with their profits? They haven't been improving worker safety like on railroads. They haven't been giving raises to their workers. They haven't been improving benefits. They've been buying back their stock, their own stock, to prop up their stock price. So I think I agree with what President Biden has proposed. Expand the stock buyback tax from 1% to 4% which is basically that would raise like $75 billion, I think someone said. And the idea is that if companies are going to invest in that way, which does nothing to return anything to the economy, all it does is prop up their share price and make, and make their shareholders more paper gains, they should pay taxes on that. A third thing, and I touched on this, is investors who make money on capital gains income should pay the same rate on that income as workers pay on wages. Someone goes out and makes an investment and gets, you know, makes $100 on it. We shouldn't tax that at a fraction of the rate that we tax a construction worker or a teacher who gets a salary. 
I think we should be the same. Capital gains tax, you know, assets at the time you make them or at the point of inheritance. That's the other thing. If someone inherits from someone, cap, you know, a portfolio whose gains have, have gone through the roof, they've done nothing for that. They should pay tax on that, at least at the same level that we pay on wages. So if those are a few ways that we can raise hundreds of billions of dollars by targeting people who are very, 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 very wealthy, who have done very, very, very well for themselves. Not to be punitive, just to, because we have a challenge now. I mean, you take a look. You know, we had a fight recently. It went all the way to the Supreme Court. It's not over yet. That the president wants to weigh $400 million worth of debt. Go go listen to, I can't remember what episode it was, but of the middle where we talked about this. He wants to weigh $400 million of debt, or billion dollars of debt, from people who have student loans. $400 billion. Over 30 years. Well, the Trump tax cuts were $2.1 trillion over 10 years. Okay? It's just a matter of equity. It's a matter of fairness. So um, notwithstanding the, sh- the, the, the snark that Eugene brought the question to me, I'm glad that he did um, because those are some ideas I think that we can address our deficits and debts. And so that's the end of our show today. I encourage you to stay in touch with me. If you like what you're hearing here on The Middle Unplugged, subscribe if you haven't already. Share it. That's the way we you know, get the word out. If you're in an app that lets you give a grade or a comment, welcome for you to do that. It's another place that I get ideas to respond to. I want to thank all of you for the support for the show. Encourage you to tune in on Saturdays between 2 and 3 when the middle is on, 3 to 4 of Saturdays, Left versus Right with Curtis Lewa. All of these things you can get as their own podcast on the Red Apple Podcast Network or anywhere that you can get podcasts. I really do appreciate all your support. Also want to say thanks to the sound designer and producer of this podcast, Michael Garcia, and hope to see you next time on The Middle Unplugged. This is the end of The Middle Unplugged. <laughs>